Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. In the last two episodes, we covered how Finland was incorporated into the Kingdom of Sweden through three crusades, of which at least the two latter ones definitely really happened. This time, we'll turn our attention westward and look at what was going on in Iceland at roughly the same time. The Icelandic Commonwealth was in crisis, and the whole Icelandic political system, based on a delicate balance of power and everyone's respect for the law, had been upset. Observing the developing chaos, the King of Norway saw an opportunity to expand his realm and try to impose his rule on the island. The independence of Iceland hung in the balance, and the only ones capable of defending it were busy fighting each other. Episode 43, Commonwealth in Crisis. It's been a while since we last talked about Iceland. In fact, we haven't discussed Iceland since we talked about the Christianization of the island in the year 1000. So I think it may be necessary to briefly remind everyone about the way Iceland was governed, because it's going to be relevant today. I know we covered all of this in some detail back in episode 11, Here's the Thing. But as a service to all of you who can't be bothered to go back and listen to an old episode and don't really remember how Viking Age Icelanders organized their society, here's a brief recap of the bits that will be relevant for today's episode. So back in the year 930, when all the land in Iceland had been claimed by the first generation of settlers, the General Assembly called the Althing was established. This marked the beginning of the Icelandic Commonwealth. The most powerful leaders in Iceland were the chieftains, or Gothar. Unlike the rest of Scandinavia and most parts of Europe, the authority of a chieftain wasn't defined strictly by geography, but rather by popularity. A free man could choose to support any of the chieftains of his district, which meant that chieftains couldn't count on automatic support from the people who lived in their vicinity. Instead, they had to earn their support by demonstrating their qualities as leaders. They did so by throwing lavish parties, by protecting farmers, and by helping them get compensation or vengeance if their rights were violated. In exchange, their farmers pledged their support to the chieftain, which meant that they'd vote as he wanted in the Althing, and that they'd fight against his enemies if the chieftain called upon them to do so. Not least, this latter aspect will be quite important in today's episode. This relationship of protector and protected was central to Icelandic society, since there was no central power or executive body that could enforce the law. According to the sagas, the Icelanders had chosen this model in reaction against the power-grabbing and centralizing tendencies of Harald Fairhair, the first king of Norway. But down the road, not having a state with an army to enforce decisions would prove to be a serious flaw. Maybe even a fatal flaw. It took some time, though, for this flaw to become evident, and the Icelandic Commonwealth puttered on for a few hundred years in relative prosperity. Relative being the key word here, taking into account the strict limitations the North Atlantic climate enforces on the potential for prosperity. Politically, however, the Icelanders were basically doing just fine, governing themselves for several generations. But nothing lasts forever, does it? In the early 13th century, the delicate balance of power that had guaranteed relative stability in the Commonwealth was falling apart. Various chieftains were fighting each other to increase their own power base at the expense of other chieftains. In the early days, there had been at least 39 chieftains, but 
Eventually, strong and rich ones started to attack and outmaneuver their weaker colleagues, eventually taking over their chieftaincies and followers. Toward the end of the 12th century, this process had gone so far that a handful of chieftains representing about half a dozen powerful clans had managed to take control over most of the island. All this set the scene for what was to come next. In this context, the year 1220 is important because it's conventionally seen as the beginning of the so-called Age of the Sturlungs, which was a period of violent internal strife marked by the conflicts of the last few chieftains who had concentrated all the power in their own hands and who claimed allegiance from most of the freemen of Iceland. The period is named after the most powerful of the Icelandic clans, the Sturlungs, and we know what we know, or think we know, about this period thanks to a collection of contemporary sagas known as the Sturlunga Saga. It was written by people who experienced the internal power struggle firsthand, and it gives a fascinating glimpse into 13th century Iceland, including descriptions of wounds that are so detailed that some scholars believe they're based on eyewitness accounts used in court proceedings for compensation claims. So the age of the Sturlungs is characterized by fighting between the various clans, and sometimes between different members of the same clan in an insanely complicated web of raids and glorified skirmishes that saga writers and historians like to call battles. There is no way to go into all the details, describe all the ins and outs, ups and downs and backs and forths. There's also no point. It would be an enormously tedious exercise for everyone involved, with the possible exception of those contemporary Icelanders who can still trace their ancestry back to the people who were involved in those struggles. Instead, this episode will be limited to an overview of the main events and the main actors. And believe me, there will still be plenty of names, intrigues and bloodshed. So what happened in 1220 that kicked off this Icelandic version of Game of Thrones? Admittedly, it's a somewhat arbitrary line drawn in the cold, wet Icelandic sand, but the age of the Sturlings is considered to have begun in 1220 because that's when Snorri Sturluson, chieftain of the Sturlung clan, became a vassal of King Håkon of Norway, promising to help bring about Iceland's submission to Håkon's rule. At this time, King Håkon was trying to extend his influence in Iceland, and several Icelandic chieftains became his vassals in exchange for gifts, followers and increased power. Consequently, most of the greatest Icelandic chieftains eventually accepted to submit to the King of Norway. The reason Snorri Sturluson's acceptance of Norwegian vassalage gets the distinction of starting the age of the Sturlungs is because of who Snorri was. So who was Snorri Sturluson? For us today, and I mean people in general, not just for you and me, Snorri Sturluson is best known as an author. Traditionally, He's seen as the one who compiled, edited and maybe even penned parts of the Prose Edda, our main source of knowledge about Norse mythology. He also wrote the Heimskringla, a history of the kings of Norway and our major source of knowledge about what went on in Norway from the age of Harald Fairhair onward. These books are absolutely fundamental for our understanding of the Viking Age and early medieval Scandinavia, and if the title sounds familiar, it might be because I've mentioned them repeatedly on this show before. So his importance as a literary figure can hardly be overstated. Without him, our image of the Viking Age would be very different, and definitely much less interesting. But on today's episode, we're going to focus more on his political activities. They are far less stellar than his poetic ones. 
As a learned and prominent member of the most important family on the island, Snorri Sturluson was elected Law Speaker of the Althing not once, but twice. As I'm sure you all remember, the Law Speaker was the person who led the deliberations at the Althing, and he was one of the most, if not the most respected persons on the island. This is obviously why the King of Norway was so keen to recruit him for his cause. Snorri Sturluson's family wasn't only rich and important, it was also large. He had two brothers, two sisters and no fewer than nine half-siblings. When Snorri was still just a toddler, his father Sturla was entangled in a lawsuit over the inheritance of some property with an important man called Pal Sölvason, who was a priest and a chieftain. Apparently, Pal's wife, Thorbjörg, yes, wife, early medieval priests in Iceland, didn't take the requirement of celibacy particularly seriously. Well, she didn't appreciate these legal proceedings and lunged at Snorri's father with a knife, trying to stab him in the face. Luckily, she only grazed his cheek, so murder wasn't added to the list of legal issues they were bickering over. Paul, who was a priest after all, was appalled by what Thorbjörg had done, but Sturla downplayed the incident. Still, Paul immediately asked to settle the case between them in a way that was favorable to Sturla, and he also gave him the right to set the compensation for the knife attack. Sturla used this magnanimous gesture by Paul and immediately turned around and demanded an exorbitant sum as compensation for Thorbjörg's attempt on his life. Paul realized that he'd been tricked into acting generously and now he risked financial ruin. He turned to mediation at the Althing and managed to get the fine he was supposed to pay reduced by more than two-thirds. In order to convince Sturla to agree to this reduced fine, the man who brokered the deal, called Jon Loftsson, agreed to take in Sturla's youngest son, Snorri, and foster him. Sturla agreed, perhaps because Jon was an important man with excellent connections both in Iceland and in Norway. In fact, his maternal grandfather was none other than King Magnus Barefoot of Norway, whom we talked about in episode 31, The Last Vikings. That's how young Snorri ended up in the household of Jon Loftsson. There, he received an excellent education and forged connections he might not otherwise have been able to do. He never returned to his parents' home. His father died when Snorri was only six, and his mother, as his guardian, squandered his inheritance, making his prospects modest. Still, a good marriage was arranged for Snorri in 1199, when he was 20 years old, and from his wife's father, Snorri inherited an estate as well as a chieftaincy. The marriage may have been a good one, but it wasn't happy. They only lived together for four years, and in those years they had two children that we know of. But after that, Snorri moved out to pursue other interests, or more specifically, other women. He moved to Reykjavik to the east, further inland, where he managed an estate. He made upgrades to the place, and among other things, he installed an outdoor bath heated with the water from a hot spring. It's been reconstructed, so the next time you visit Iceland, you can go and have a look at Snorri Sturluson's hot tub. In his spare time, he also had five additional children, with no fewer than three different women. His philandering didn't harm his political career, though. In 1215, about a decade after abandoning his wife to go live in his own private 13th century version of the Playboy Mansion, he was elected law speaker at the Althing for the first time. Three years later, in 1218, he left Iceland and sailed off to Norway on the invitation of none other than the teenage king himself, Håkon Håkonsson, and his co-regent, Jarl Skuli. 
they had identified Snorri Sturluson as the top political influencer in Iceland and bringing him to Norway was the first step in their plan to convince Snorri to do their bidding in Iceland. I'm not sure whether Snorri realized that he was being used by the Norwegians to promote their own political agenda, an agenda that directly threatened the independence of Iceland. But he went anyway, and by all accounts he seems to have enjoyed his time in Norway enormously. Snorri was fascinated by history and culture, and spent his time in Norway soaking up information that he would later use in his writings. He spent the winter of 1218-1219 at the Jarl's home, where they all had a jolly good time. The Norwegian regents clearly groomed Snorri, flattering him and giving him expensive gifts, including a ship. Snorri was even made a skutjilsvein, a great honour that was a rough equivalent of Snorri being knighted. All he had to do in return was a minor, small, teeny-weeny, easy thing. He had to say a few words, swear an oath of fealty and loyalty to the King of Norway. No biggie. And Snorri agreed. He swore the oath. Why did he do it? Hard to tell. Maybe he was a political idiot who didn't realize the consequences of his actions. Or maybe Snorri Sturluson really had been won over for the Norwegian plan to take over Iceland. Because that was the ultimate goal of the Norwegian king. He wanted to extend his realm to include all the islands and lands in the North Atlantic, and that goal was now within his reach when the great Snorri Sturluson, one of the most prominent members of the Icelandic Althing, was in his pocket. Snorri spent another year in Norway, but in 1220 he returned to Iceland. Two years later, in 1222, no doubt to the delight of the King of Norway, he was once again elected law speaker of the Althing. This time, he was to hold on to that prestigious office for a decade. But it wasn't his politics that got him elected. By this point, the other Icelandic chieftains considered him a mouthpiece for the King of Norway, and he openly supported Iceland unifying with Norway. That wasn't a particularly popular opinion among his fellow Icelanders, but they still made him the law speaker because they admire Snorri's as a poet. In Iceland, they've always taken literature very seriously. They still do. Nonetheless, the fact that Snorri had been knighted by the King of Norway was controversial, and some of the people who had the strongest objections were actually members of Snorri's own clan, the Sturlungs. Once he was back in Iceland, Snorri not only propagated for a union with Norway, but also started to extend his own personal power base. In 1222, his foster brother died, and Snorri then swept in and tried to marry his daughter, who was now a wealthy heiress. But Snorri's political enemies stepped in to stop this alliance, which would have made Snorri significantly richer and even more powerful. In the end, none other than Snorri's own nephew, Sturla Sigvatsson, married the girl. Still, Snorri managed to bag another, by Icelandic standards, enormously wealthy heiress from Jondoftsson's family, namely his widowed granddaughter, whom he married in 1224. From this point on, Snorri Sturluson was the most powerful chieftain in Iceland. He was one of the wealthiest men on the island, and he was the law speaker at the Althing, and he had the backing of the King of Norway. This did not, however, mean that Snorri's opponents, those who wanted to preserve Icelandic independence from Norway, were about to roll over and let Snorri invite King Håkon to take over. On the contrary, they understood that they needed to step up their game. Snorri Sturluson had a target on his back. Snorri knew that armed conflict would be unavoidable and decided that he preferred to deliver the first blow. 
He raised two armed forces, one commanded by his son and one by a nephew, but not Sturla, the nephew who'd stolen Snorri's intended bride back in 1223. The plan was for the two forces to attack and neutralize the threat posed by Snorri's brother Sigvatur and his son Sturla. Yes, the bride-stealing Sturla. But when push came to shove, it turned out that Snorri just didn't have the stomach for warfare. On the eve of battle, the poet-politician sent away his armed forces and instead offered to negotiate a settlement with his brother and nephew. Unfortunately for Snorri though, Sigvatur and Sturla were made of sturdier stuff. They, and 1,000 of their followers, attacked Snorri and forced the law speaker of Iceland to flee. He was reduced to seeking refuge among other chieftains and his son started to carry out guerrilla-style attacks on the enemies in the west fjords of Iceland. In other words, the tense situation had finally escalated to open civil war between feuding families on the island. Years of raids and attacks followed, but no major decisive battle was fought that would have settled the issue of continued independence or union with Norway once and for all. Part of the reason for that is that, by this point, the political issue of Iceland's future relations with Norway was only one aspect of the fighting. The leading chieftains also seized on this opportunity to settle old scores and to try and advance their own wealth at the expense of each other. Soon enough, the fighting became personal for many of the clans involved, and the killing of a family member needed to be avenged in accordance with the established custom of Icelandic society, regardless of that society's political status. One attack that later would prove to be crucial for the outcome of the whole civil war in the indirect and convoluted way that is so characteristic for the age of the Stirlings took place in 1228. And that attack, in turn, was actually connected to something that had happened all the way back in 1213 and had nothing whatsoever to do with the question of Icelandic independence. You see, back in the beginning of the 13th century, there was this guy living in western Iceland called Hrafn Svein Bjarnason. By all accounts, he was a great guy. He was a physician and a priest, and he had travelled the world, or at least Europe, visiting England, Spain, Italy and Norway. He was rich, but also very generous, and he would offer medical treatment to anyone who came to him without demanding payment. Basically, everyone loved him. Everyone, that is, except this one other guy, who definitely didn't, and who ended up killing him over a dispute that we're not going to get into here. Fifteen years later, Rafn Svenbjarnarsson's sons, yes, also this Icelandic priest was married with children, so his sons finally got around to avenge his death by burning their father's killer to death in his house. This episode might not have concerned us further if it hadn't been for the fact that they were assisted by none other than Sturla Sikvatsson. Now the sons of the guy who had been burned to death decided to avenge him by attacking Sturla, which they did in January the following year, so in 1229. An unconfirmed but tenacious rumour has it that they were encouraged to seek revenge on Sturla by none other than Snorri Sturluson himself, who probably hoped to get rid of one of his most formidable opponents without having to do the dirty work himself. The Avengers arrived at Sturla Sigvatsson's farm in Sødafjatl on a dark winter night in January 1229, hoping to surprise Sturla the way he had surprised their own father. But they clearly had failed in their intelligence gathering because Sturla wasn't at home when they showed up. 
Instead of retreating when they realized that the man they'd come to kill wasn't at home, they proceeded to plunder the farm, killing and wounding several of the people who were at home that night. They even broke into the bedroom of Sturla's wife and threatened her, but at least they didn't kill her. Instead, they just took all the loot they could carry and left the survivors to clear up the mess at the ransacked farm. When news about the Södafjetl raid spread, it upset a lot of people, and not only Sturla Sikvatsan. It was seen as a scandalous attack, not at all in accordance with the traditions of Icelandic feuding. The fact that Snorri Sturluson was thought to have been behind the raid added another layer of outrageousness to the whole affair. After the Södafjetl raid, the age of the Stur- after the Södafjetl raid, the age of the Stirlings entered an even more violent and chaotic phase. What's important for the purposes of our story today is that Sturla Sigvatsson kind of lost his cool after the attack on his farm and acted out in a way that may be understandable but wasn't particularly prudent. A lot of people lost their lives and even more people were upset about it. Sturla even managed to get in trouble with the church by attacking a local bishop. As a part of the reconciliation for this attack, Sturla was required to go to Rome, meet the Pope himself and atone for his sin of disrespecting a senior member of the church. Sturla Sigvatsson set out on his journey of atonement in 1233 and he did reach Rome and he did meet with the Pope. As punishment for his sins, Sturla was forced to walk more or less naked through the streets of the Eternal City, stopping in at its main churches. According to the sources, which you can choose to believe or not, Sturla took his punishment like a man, walking the required route stoically, but the locals, both men and women, stopped and stared, full of pity at the handsome man who was treated so horribly. But arguably the most important stop on his journey wasn't Italy at all, but rather Norway. Practically all Icelandic ships going to and from the continent would first dock in Norway, and when Sturla was returning to Iceland in 1235, he stopped by in Norway like everybody else. There, he too met King Håkon, who wasn't best pleased with Snorri Sturluson's lack of progress in enabling a Norwegian takeover of Iceland. So King Håkon now repeated his trick from when Snorri had visited some ten years earlier. He showered Sturla Sikvatsson with gifts and flattery until he convinced him to swear loyalty to Håkon and to aid him in putting an end to the Icelandic independence. So when Sturla Sigvatsson eventually returned home, he was, politically speaking, on the same side as his uncle Snorri Sturluson. That didn't mean that they were no longer enemies though. They most definitely were. Sturla brought a message for Snorri Sturluson from King Håkon. The King of Norway wanted a word. Face to face. King Håkon was not happy with the way Snorri had been conducting his business and when he arrived in Norway, Snorri soon realized that he had fallen out of favor with the king. There were far fewer lavish gifts and a whole lot more insults being showered at the Icelander this time around. Snorri decided to stay at Jarl Skulis just as he had done la- the last time he was in Norway. That didn't exactly endear him with the king either, since tension had been building between the two co-regents lately. We'll get deeper into the details of that mess next time, but the short version of it is that it looked like the Norwegian civil war was about to flare up again, and King Håkon suspected that Snorri was taking Jarl Skuli's side. Meanwhile, back in Iceland, Sturla Sigvatsson mustered his forces and set out to fight the chieftains who refused to accept King Håkon's demand that Iceland yield to his authority. 
on August 21, 1238, Sturla, his father Sigvatur, and approximately 1,000 of their followers faced two other chieftains, Gissur Thorvaldsson and Kolbein the Young, in the Skagafjörður area in northern Iceland. Gissur and Kolbein had brought some 1,700 men to the fight, which means that this battle, known as the Battle of Örlugstadir, was the largest military engagement in the history of Iceland. More than 50 people fell during the battle, and, unfortunately for Sturla, except seven, all of the fallen were on his side. Even worse luck for Sturla, both he and his father were among those who lay dead on the battlefield when the fighting was over. According to the Sturlinga saga, Sturla fought bravely as many men tried to kill him. In the end, it was none other than the chieftain Gissur Thorvaldsson himself who finally killed him. After the battle, Gissur and Kolbein the Young were now the most powerful men in Iceland. When the news of the battle eventually reached Snorri Sturluson in Norway, he asked King Håkon to let him return home to Iceland. But the king no longer trusted Snorri, and denied the request, instead explicitly ordering the Icelander to stay in Norway. He had the right to do so, after all, since Snorri had accepted a noble title and sworn that oath of fealty to the king. But Snorri found a way to escape. Jarl Skuli, who by now was Håkon's rival much more than his co-regent, was more than happy to grant the request, and even helped Snorri to find a ship that would take him back to Iceland. When Snorri returned in 1239, he didn't waste any time. He resumed his position as chieftain and set out to destroy his rivals, Gissur and Kolbein. He didn't have the manpower to take them on in battle, so instead he decided that his best chances of success would be in court. He brought charges against them for the deaths of Sigvat and Sturla, claiming that they had been killed in an unlawful way. There was going to be a showdown at the Althing in the summer of 1241. Snorri came armed with all his best legal arguments, but just to make sure everything went his way, he also brought 120 armed followers as backup. Gissur and Kolbein brought even more men to the Althing, but in the end Gissur chose to back down and pay the fine instead of attacking Snorri Sturluson then and there. But that didn't mean that Gissur and Kolbein were going to leave Snorri in peace. Far from it. As far as Gissur and Kolbein were concerned, Snorri's victory at the Althing hadn't been a defeat, but rather a tactical withdrawal to regroup. You see, when King Håkon discovered that Snorri had disobeyed him and left Norway, he sent two of his agents to Iceland with a secret letter to Gissur. In it, King Håkon invited Gissur to join the attempts to unite Iceland with Norway under Håkon's rule and ordered Gissur to kill Snorri Sturluson. Clearly, the king had lost both patience for, as well as faith in, Snorri and his ability to win Iceland for Håkon. So when the Althing ended and everyone went home, Gissur started to plan how he was going to take Snorri out. He went to one of his nephews called Urm and asked him to join in the killing of Snorri. But Orm rebuffed him. He refused to have anything to do with the killing of the great poet and so-so politician Snorri Sturluson. Not too long after Gissur had tried and failed to convince Orm to join in his conspiracy, Snorri actually received a letter written in cipher runes. And there are plenty of people around who think that the timing was a little too convenient for it not to have been Orm who sent it. The letter warned Snorri that there was going to be an attempt on his life. But, 
Tragically, Snorri wasn't able to decipher the message. So when Gissur and 70 of his followers showed up at Snorri's house in Reykholt later that fall, they took Snorri completely by surprise. He tried to flee and hide in the cellar, but there was no escaping what was coming next. Snorri Sturluson's last words before he was cut down were supposed to have been which means don't strike, don't strike, or at least that's what the saga tells us. In contrast, the king of Norway insisted that Snorri Sturluson would have been spared if he had only given up and handed himself over to Gissur and his men. He made that claim in order to try and placate the public opinion in Iceland, where the murder of the great chieftain and poet Snorri Sturluson was greeted with outrage. In 1236, Thordur Sigvatsson, one of Snorri's brothers, returned home to Iceland to seek vengeance for his brothers and his father. He asserted his authority and quickly proved himself to be a masterful military leader. His entry into the conflict initiated one of the most violent stages of the Age of the Sturlungs. For instance, on the 25th of June 1244, Thordur and his men fought Kolbein the Young in the Battle of the Gulf the only naval battle in the history of Iceland where only Icelanders were involved. From the description of the battle in the Sturlunga saga, we learn that much of the fighting consisted of the two sides throwing rocks at each other. Two years later, in 1246, Thordur fought and killed Kolbein's son at the Battle of Haugsnes. It's considered the bloodiest battle in the history of Iceland, with 110 fallen soldiers. But for all his fighting, Thordur never challenged Gissur, since they were both vassals of the king of Norway. Instead, they called upon the king to mediate between them, and to Gissur's chagrin, the king sided with Thordur, who could now rule Iceland almost by himself. Gissur left the island and settled in Norway. But in 1252, the king sent Gissur back to Iceland. For obvious reasons, this wasn't popular among Thordur's followers. And since they had spent the last generation or so expressing their displeasure by turning to violence, they did so this time as well. On the 22nd of October, 1253, they attacked Gissur's farm and set fire to it. 25 people died in the flames and the fighting. Among the victims were Gissur's wife and their sons. Gissur himself only survived by hiding in a barrel of whey, which, for those of you who may not know, is the liquid remaining after milk has been curdled and strained. Gissur tried but failed to find and take revenge on the people behind the attack, and in 1254 he returned to Norway where he was forced to face the king's wrath for his failure to convince the Icelanders to accept the king of Norway as their overlord. But the king hadn't given up hope that Gissur would be able to deliver Iceland to him after all, so Gissur was promoted to Jarl and sent home to Iceland again in order to convince the remaining chieftains to accept Norwegian superiority. In the end, King Håkon got his way. The Icelanders were sick of the constant fighting and hoped that Norwegian control would lead to stability and peace for the island. They were also worried that if they didn't submit to Norway, King Håkon would impose sanctions on them, closing Norwegian ports to Icelandic shipping, a bit like when King Olaf Tryggvason forced the Icelanders to become Christians. The church also supported Håkon, since it preferred that every land in Christendom be ruled by a prince. This Icelandic commonwealth, where freeborn men basically ruled themselves, didn't sit well within the worldview of the medieval church. 
So in the year 1262, the Althing finally agreed to a union with Norway and signed the so-called Old Covenant, sometimes also known as the Gisur Covenant after chieftain Gisur Thorvaldsson. They swore an oath of loyalty to the king, instituting a tradition that would survive for 400 years, with the Althing swearing loyalty to each new monarch that would ascend the throne until 1662, when the Icelanders were forced to agree to an absolute monarchy where their formal consent no longer was needed and their loyalty was required without any oaths. The signing of the Old Covenant spelt the end of the Commonwealth. Iceland was no longer an independent republic, but subordinate to the crown of Norway. But that didn't mean that it was all doom and gloom from now on. The terms of the covenant were actually pretty favourable, and Iceland profited from the arrangement. It's true that the covenant demanded that the Icelanders pay taxes to the King of Norway, but in return they had peace, rule of law and reliable transportation and shipping between Norway and Iceland. Norwegians and Icelanders also received equal rights in each other's countries. Under Norwegian rule, trade links between the two countries increased, and Iceland experienced a period of economic growth and settlement expansion. In the beginning, under the terms of the Old Covenant, Iceland and Norway were actually more or less equal partners. It was not to last, however. Once Iceland had accepted Norwegian rule, it would gradually lose more and more of its autonomy as the years went by, and more and more powers and authority would slip between the Icelandic fingers. But that's the story for another day. Next time, we'll have a closer look at the man who in many ways has dominated this episode without actually making much of an appearance. We'll talk about King Håkon IV of Norway. During his long reign, Norway not only gained control over Iceland, but also experienced something of a golden age. I hope you'll join me then. I also hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to show or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.